0: Hi everybody, I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where the big names in tech discuss the big ideas. And a huge shift that's been happening over the past few years is in marketing. So much has changed because of COVID and now finally the sort of release from COVID. We're seeing a return to IRL events. We've seen massive changes to ad targeting with Apple's new rules. We're seeing meme marketing exploding and brands starting to act weird just to stand out. And we're gonna be talking with two incredible CMOs today to discuss what is changing and how can you adapt your marketing strategies to make sure you're doing it the modern, the right way. So we're here With Jim Stoneham, a true legend of marketing. He was the CMO of Stripe and formerly New Relic. He sold his startup Opsmatic to New Relic and another company to Intuit before that and worked at Apple and Yahoo and just an unbelievable wealth of knowledge on the marketing space. And Stacey Politi, who is currently the CMO of Main Street. And if you're not as familiar with them, they are an incredible startup that helps you earn free tax credits for your startup. They get you like $52,000 on average in free tax credits for your company. So definitely something to check out if you're not familiar with Main Street. And Jim also has some huge news. He actually just joined our venture fund Signal Fire, today as a full-time VC to help our portfolio companies think through their marketing strategies. So super excited to have you guys here today. Jim, Maybe you can just kick us off. I'd love to hear a little bit about what are some of the major changes you've been noticing going on in marketing the last few years.
1: Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me today. So much has been changing. So, obviously, the last couple of years have met people completely retooling how they approach their marketing to the market with loss of in person contact with their customers, as well as just like changing attitudes among consumers and businesses alike as the impact of COVID has landed on people and also like. We're acting more and more like a global community as well so i've I've seen a lot more interest from every part of the world in what the rest of the world is doing and obviously there's major events going on right now that that shape the entire world so in terms of shifting like the importance of connecting with people online is greater than ever you're seeing a lot of companies retool for moving their events online their customer interactions online now we're facing the move back to in-person events so how are we going to balance those two things together and the smart companies are thinking about how to continue a hybrid strategy going forward when it comes to kind of interacting with customers. But it's also about getting to know kind of the hopes and aspirations and dreams of the target customers and prospects, which has always been essential to great marketing, but even more so now, because people are no longer just having just their business hat on. They're thinking their entire 360 all the time. So thinking about like, I call it talking to people in their mind and their heart at the same time is becoming even more essential as you're reaching out to people. So
0: there's just a couple quick things that I've been observing recently. Stacy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what else has been changing recently
2: thanks for having me. I agree with all of those across the board. And also something that's been really refreshing to me as a startup marketer is the acceptance of lower production value. You kind of see this across the board. When we first went into lockdown and in the pandemic, we weren't able to produce the high quality content that we once were, whether it was like full on commercials or even just from being out of the office and having to do things at home. And we saw that a lot of content creators were becoming the big influencers and trusted voices outside of their living rooms. And so, watching brands adopt those methods has been something that I've really loved seeing and imagine will stay for quite some time. And again, this back to IRL events, but this normalization of virtual events. Previously, it was really hard to get people to join or even guests to join because they were in all different parts of the country. But it really became the norm over these past two years and is something that I think will stick around for quite a while even when we all returned to office and back to normal so it's been quite nice
0: I'm very excited to talk a little bit more about if event marketing can even really be effective and if there's been a ton of fatigue, but I want to jump into that low production value thing. It seems like that might be a repercussion of this shift away from what we call the Instagram aesthetic. Maybe circa 2014, it was all about these hyper polished, perfectly posed photos, but that quickly became kind of inauthentic. And we saw this new wave of more planned you know, acting a little bit more candid in your photos, a little bit more off the cuff. The rise of Instagram stories and Snapchat stories really made So you're seeing the behind the scenes of people as well. And people just got more comfortable on camera in general. So I think people were a lot more people were willing to actually help try to make some content. But it seemed like what this also did was it created this connection between low production value and authenticity. And you see this all over TikTok now where some of the most popular videos are like incredibly grainy shot on old phones with bad lighting. And what really just matters is like the message and how you speak to people. I would love to hear if you guys have seen that aesthetic change more widely. Is that something that beyond maybe just video content you're seeing in photos, text and other marketing materials or just being maybe a bit more colloquial versus being really sort of intelligent and professional?
1: Yeah, Josh, I think, as Stacey was saying, the production value situation has changed a lot through the course of the pandemic. But what I also have seen, you know, the message has always been the most important thing. And like you said, TikTok's like changed the boundaries for what production values mean to people. What I've seen is basically the rise of just user-generated content writ large. So content marketing has always been an important attribute of any company's go-to-market. And increasingly, we're seeing more and more people writing very quick opinion pieces, very quick blog posts that aren't super polished, aren't super wordsmith, don't have amazing photos to illustrate the concepts, but they're speaking from their heart and their voice. And like the rise of like content from any part of your organization or just creators out in the world, I think is a new element of marketing. And I love that it's very spontaneous. It's not super polished. And I think it really gets to the true voice of each individual.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a lot has to do with consumers becoming experts at you know zooming through their feeds and being very good at skipping over those promoted posts. And even if a post isn't promoted and it's organically placed, for a while, it was very clear what was built by a team of 13 digital marketers and what was maybe something that was put out just honestly and authentically. And I know authentic can be a gross buzzword in the world of marketing, but especially now, and like Jim was saying, peeling back that curtain, showing the teams that are creating these things, showing how it's done and taking away some of that veneer is really appealing at this time, especially when there are so many filters to be had.
0: Yeah, it seems like you get to empower a wider range of people in your organization to make content instead of saying, oh, this is only the respect of this one person or this one team saying anybody who makes something that is worthwhile to read or consume can make it and it doesn't need to be perfect. It's better to just actually keep on producing things and keeping up in in front of people's minds. So I also want to talk a little bit about the event marketing, because I think that that's something that's on so many people's minds right now as COVID kind of wanes a bit and we see a lot more IRL events happening. Are you seeing the same kind of demand we had before or maybe even more demand? And is this stuff effective? Because I know a ton of companies pour a huge amount of money into like sponsoring conferences or throwing their own giant events and sometimes it can feel a little questionable if that's actually has ROI to it.
2: I can take this one. So I truly do believe that there is going to be a return on IRL. People are just itching to be in person. I don't think it's going to come back with this velocity right away, but I think it will get there and it is worth it. So there's just something about being in person and connecting in the flesh where you can get things accomplished in terms of brand awareness and brand equity that would take hours of virtual panels and Zoom calls to do. And so being able to build that connection with the Consumer or with the businesses you're trying to reach out to is really something, and some of those brand sponsorships are really worthwhile because they give you that equity. And so, say you're going out and you're at South by and holding an experiential event, or you're doing TechCrunch Disrupt and you're a sponsor, there is a way of holding on to some of that equity that those other brands have built that can really help accelerate your business at a, you know a faster pace than if you were to maybe go at it in, in a more thrift
0: way. That said, I did just get back from South by Southwest and there were half as many events as in previous years, according to like event registration and permit filings. And we saw Basically, all the big events were thrown by crypto companies, friends with benefits, the giant DAO, the Sandbox, the NFT land company had Paris Hilton at their party. Like that was the stuff that really was catching people's attention, where it felt like it wasn't just you going to a party, it was going to a community where you'd meet other people who you'd be interested in. Is that more of the focus? It's not maybe about big, like high production value content or like performers, but creating a good container for the right people?
1: Yeah, I think like Stacey said, like people are itching to get back to reconnect with their communities in real life. We've made do over email and over Zoom over the past couple of years, but people are really want to connect with people who are in the same craft as they are, talk about business and personal issues and all that. So there's definitely a huge thirst. The other thing I would say, though, is we've peeled back the curtain also on like kind of event marketing and what the role of a remote event, a hybrid event, an online event feels like. There's a whole bunch of attendees to these online events over the past couple of years that never would have gone to a trade show or an event, right? If I think about Stripe, we had like roughly 10x the people attend our last user conference online versus, you know, a couple of years before when it was in person. And that's amazing to have that kind of reach. So I think what's going to be an interesting challenge going forward is how we bring these moments to life, both in the physical and online world kind of simultaneously. How can you participate in South by if you're not there, for example, and still have part of that experience and just reach a much broader audience? I think that's a huge opportunity.
2: Yeah. And I have to say hearing that South by had so few um, events being thrown really gives me FOMO because I just feel like the share of voice was really in the favor of the companies that were there. And I know this is kind of going off topic, but some brands not being there because attendance might be low, but maybe actually being able to have a a bit of a larger footprint uh, relative to what they would during, you know, South by 2019.
0: Yeah, and what I've been seeing across a lot of events is these unofficial side events are getting super popular. Like yeah, there might be some massive conference, but it's saying, okay, what audience is in town for this and what can we throw on our own where we don't have to necessarily confine to the bounds of what the conference organizers want to do. We don't have to just do like a stuffy panel on stage. We can throw a party or some event that appeals to the same people that are gonna be there, especially in the after hours, often when the conference isn't running. And I've seen that to be incredibly popular and like those events that are going on that are following, whether it's like the crypto event circuit, the developer operations, the DevOps circuit have been incredibly popular. So really excited to see what happens with that if we're going to continue to see people pouring money into this and maybe saying, hey, if everyone else is pulling back, that's kind of the time to lean in. You know, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, Josh,
1: just quickly, like that's my secret sauce with events, quite honestly, is exactly what you're describing. I often will not spend big money on a booth, but I will get a hotel suite and sponsor a little off the side event or invite customers in. And I find those to be amazing opportunities to engage. Like you said, given that that audience is in town, I'm a big believer in taking that approach. I think it's very effective.
0: That's very swanky of you. That sounds pretty fun. Okay, so I want to talk about some more major issues that have been hitting the space recently. One of the biggest things is that it feels like the market has gotten so crowded, especially in online social media, that the only way brands are kind of sticking out right now are by being kind of especially weird. You see like liquid death performing really well, where they kind of break a bunch of norms, challenge a bunch of your assumptions, and really stick out in those feeds. So I feel like we saw this a while back with like Doritos getting much more serious about very silly, funny ads for the Super Bowl and now it's kind of trickled down into the startup world. And Stacey, I know you guys have done this with Main Street. You've done a bunch of really funny things that are a bit more meme-like or at least being very blunt with your audience. So would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that specifically. Is like, are we going to see more of this meme marketing? And do brands have to like adopt a completely irreverent voice to stand out? Or can you still be that like very professional, very staid, very reliable voice and get traction and get attention?
2: Well, I think you can still be that reliable, trusted voice once you get the traction. But I think a lot of times putting yourself out there being irreverent is the way to get started and especially like we were talking about some of the meme marketing and some of the weirder stuff that some brands do it kind of goes back to what we were talking about low production value it can be an inexpensive way to really foster community and be more human to the people that are following you or even the people that aren't following you it's also a more likely way to get shares especially with something like main street you know we're a, a fintech brand we're not necessarily going to be something that people are going to want to share with their friends for fun because something is silly or funny, unless we can come up with something really creative. And so that's really a tried and true tactic, especially for smaller businesses with smaller followings in order to get people a little bit in your corner and rooting for you as a company.
0: Yeah, that brings up one thing that the CEO of Liquid Death said when he came on Press Club recently was he was talking about how you need to have an enemy, like you got to start beef with somebody and make them the enemy. And in this case, they were like, we're just going to say plastic is evil. Death to plastic is their kind of brand identity. And they found that to be really powerful that like you pick an enemy, you become the ally of everyone who also hates that enemy.
2: It's funny because I've been following them and following all of the stuff they've been doing. I mean, the hashtag Death to Plastic is all over the place. Murder your thirst. Thirst is also an enemy of many. So I agree. It is kind of like starting a little bit of a rumble and finding ways to get people to root for you. And so we try and do that on social for Main Street. And I think it's just a way for people to really connect. And the same way where people have fandoms, it's kind of like, how do you become a brand that people want to be a fan of, it's something that can be a little bit manufactured and created with the right type of copy and creative.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing we're seeing is people have seen so much of the standard marketing playbook already that you've got basically ad blindness going on. So it's got to be irreverent. It's got to be different. We're all, as Stacey said, it's going past the ads in our feed. So stuff has really got to stand out. And I love the rawness of it and also just often like the very direct and blunt language as well. The comment about this last company is like, I had a briefing with a pretty well-run reporter from Wall Street Journal years ago said basically, when you pitch me a story, if, if it doesn't have something really new or something that's conflict, I'll invent a conflict if I need to, to get it noticed. And I think that's true of human nature is they want people love the heroes and the villains.
0: One thing about that kind of concept of allies is that we see a lot of these like upvoting pods that that's become super popular is how do you organize like your entire community all your allies to come and like mob up on your social media when you have a big announcement that way you can get that extra reach. Have you guys seen that to be effective still? I think that was a huge part of like Instagram marketing back in the day they called them pods people would like literally sign up it's like okay every time we post one of these links everyone has to like if you don't like you get kicked out of the pod and you don't get promoted by it anymore. You know I know the algorithms are trying to kind of figure that out. And you see pretty smart attempts at that from things like Hacker News and Product Hunt that are basically trying to, you know, create anti-spam measures so you can't astroturf new products. But are you seeing those upvote pods work? Is it worthwhile to spend that time? Or are you really just kind of like creating this echo chamber where you're just showing your own content and marketing to your own team and it's not actually really reaching the outer sphere?
2: So, I haven't really invested time in the upvote pods lately. I used to work in media and entertainment, and those were actually very effective. To get shows brought back on air after they've been canceled. So that was something that once we had a very, very large dedicated fandom for a certain property, was something that we could put in place. From where I stand now, working in the startup world, it's a little bit tougher because it's harder to get people on board unless they already have something. I guess this is where the liquid death strategy comes in, has something that they're fighting against. So it's not something that I've seen lately, but in terms, of in my old days of bringing shows back, I've seen Community was one that I worked on where it was canceled multiple times and brought back by pure fandom.
0: That's amazing. But with that, I want to hear a little bit more about your story, Jim. You have had this remarkable career, Apple, Yahoo, starting companies, selling them to Intuit and New Relic, becoming the CMO of New Relic, then the CMO of Stripe, which is just one of the most on-fire startups in, in the last decade. And what I really want to know, though, is To hear a few of the moments where you felt like you actually leveled up and what caused that, like what were some of the biggest lessons in marketing that you learned over that course of your career and how did that shape your future strategies?
1: Oh, thanks, Josh. You're too kind. I've been just incredibly fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and work with some really incredible teams as well. But, you know, a few of those moments, actually, my last startup, Opsmatic. We took a very deliberate approach with data to understand our customers as they were starting to use the product and really talk to them at the right moment in their kind of life cycle of using it and understand the activation points and really send messages to them, primarily an email that were like designed to be what they needed to know right at that moment and that progression of their use of our product. And it was incredibly effective at getting people to engage more deeply with the product, and then get them to advocate for us with their colleagues, basically. So the first time really using deep data to drive high engagement, we were seeing like open rates on those emails in the high 70%, which is kind of unheard of with email marketing. But it was really about being their partner along that journey. That was like a huge eye-opener for me. And I took that same kind of approach with me to New Relic and then to Stripe as well as we built out our deep lifecycle marketing practices. And that was like an amazing kind of aha moment as well.
0: Just to jump in, I feel like I hear a lot of that data-driven marketing and I don't often hear a lot of like exactly what that means in practice. Is it really just sort of looking at what performs well, what doesn't, doing more of what performs well or like tell me some more of the nuance. Like if somebody's trying to get better at data-driven marketing, what are some of the like key tactics they should be using?
1: There's a couple of dimensions to this. Obviously, one one form of data-driven marketing is just looking at the statistics and performance of anything you're doing on a campaign or a paid program or community outreach and seeing how it's performing and Shifting channel, shifting spend, doing testing and messaging and paying attention to the data to adjust that. That's kind of been around for a while, right? The next level of it is being very thoughtful around using data to figure out who your target customer is and then being very focused on your outreach with those customers. Not doing broad like email messages or not doing broad buys, but being very hyper-focused. And with the advent of like, programmatic and other focused channels for ad spend. Like people have been able to do very almost bespoke kind of campaigns that are really targeted very micro segments, which has been very, very effective. The last piece I was just talking about is really putting product signal data to work for you to help pull a customer through that lifecycle. So for example, if I'm using, say, one of New Relics products, and I know like the first 10 steps of engagement for that customer, after they get through step one, if they pause, I might send them a note saying, you know, get you to the next step, basically. So I'm essentially there as they walk through that journey. And that kind of lifecycle marketing just deepens engagement, pulls people in. And you see consumer apps do this too. They, they put messages up in their UI that say, hey, hey, haven't tried the groups feature yet, give it a shot. So, so that kind of following the customer along their journey and like helping them get more out of your product or service, it just creates a ton more value and more engagement. And so those are like three different flavors of data-driven marketing, but there's more, but those are like three big examples.
0: I feel like you're often well off just like looking at what some of these major tech giants do and saying like how could I scale that to my community like I don't know if you've ever tried not using Facebook for a few days they will just hammer you with emails and text messages trying to get you back they'll try every form of notification and just like thinking through how can you hit somebody right when they might be about to churn and pull them back in seems like a hugely important strategy that I don't hear enough about.
1: It's a massive lever and it's, it requires an investment, right? As I'm starting to work with companies in SignalFire's portfolio, like a first question I'll have is like, how instrumented is your product journey? Do you know what your key activation points are? Do you know when it's trouble, when, when a customer might be fading in their use of the product? Because that, to your point, that could be a huge moment to kind of capture them, bring them back in, get them reengaged, let them explore new features. So it's really critical.
0: Stacey, we'd love to hear if there was any moments from your career that you felt like you really leveled up or there was a, a lesson that really mattered to you that you put to work for the rest of your career.
2: Yeah. I guess the lesson that I've probably put into action is oftentimes a lot of people, including myself, want to maybe just step back because you don't want to step on toes or you don't want to necessarily come off as taking something over. And what I found throughout is that sometimes people just want someone to have ownership and to really take something on and run with it. And that's something I learned early on in my career when I wasn't didn't have a team at all and was an individual contributor. And then as I've grown to manage more and more people, I found that I really also value those people as a manager. And so those people who are definitely great to work with, are good communicators, are collaborative, aren't pushing people out of the way or being territorial, but are willing to kind of take ownership and run with something, I found that I really value them and have learned by watching that, that that's also something that I want to continue to do as an employee and a leader. So that's something that's been a theme
0: throughout. Jim, I'd love to hear some more stories from like Stripe marketing because you blew up the team. You think you like grew at 5X while you were there for a few years and you went through this crazy hyper growth period in the middle of COVID when suddenly e-commerce went from, yeah, it's important to, no, this is the only way we do business. I'd love to hear some stories about how you manage that or like some things that you found really worked or resonated while you were there. Because I think Stripe's such a, an iconic company now. People would love to hear a little bit of the behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, and listen, Josh, I mean, the company's an amazing company. Patrick and John Collison, the founders and the, the team that's built that company, like I got to join kind of mid-flight, so to speak. So my job was to just help accelerate. And some of the key challenges that we were facing when I arrived is we had broadened our reach beyond the startups that the been uh, traditional adopters of Stripe that then grew with Stripe to become big, amazing companies like Zim, for example. But we, as a company, we hadn't put in place some of the linchpin pieces you need to market to like larger enterprises and it's a typically more involved sale and all that. There's a lot of like fundamental infrastructure to put in place. You know, the team was pretty small by most standards, and you know, there's a chance to really scale up those capabilities pretty dramatically. So, like, you know, for example, as a company, we're doing a lot of targeted outreach by a customer segment based on their needs. Because obviously, a startup who's looking to adopt Stripe as their initial solution for financial infrastructure has a whole different set of considerations than like a large enterprise is looking to potentially swap out like a legacy provider for somebody new. And there's a whole different set of considerations, different ways to reach them and so forth. So the first thing we had to do is start to segment kind of our outbound marketing and build campaigns by segment, which for folks who are in like consumer products, that's like how you do things, but on the tech side, it's often not in place. So we built out a lot of that capability to like target by segment and have very bespoke messaging per segment, knowing what the kind of pain points and where they were in their kind of life cycle. So it was a big investment area. And along with that included like building out the whole enterprise marketing capability with things like customer advisory boards and an executive briefing capability. And just an ability to connect really well with these kind of enterprise customers. Uh, And then, as I mentioned earlier, like building out a whole hybrid events capability (laughs) during COVID, which a lot of companies had to do. We had to do that at Stripe scale as well. And I would say one of the last things was a pretty big explosion of new product offerings from Stripe during that time as well. Moving from payments to adding way more products, banking as a service, capital and credit, fraud detection, all that. And it was really moving from a single product message to a solution selling message as well, which, again, a lot of companies struggle as they grow to do that. And we had an amazing product marketing team that kind of made that shift from selling one product at a time to selling like the platform through solution selling. And that's a really important step that a lot of companies don't always get right when they start to grow. And I think Stripe did an excellent job of doing that.
0: I would love if you could just talk through a little bit of that concept of like product messaging versus solution messaging and just sort of break that down for us so people understand.
1: Sure. So for example, let's say I'm trying to, you know, you're considering a new payments provider and you're thinking about, I want to process payments. I want to be able to detect fraud. I might have a subscription service. I want to have a subscription billing capabilities. Maybe I'm doing BarkBox, for example. I'm selling a subscription service for dog owners. So if I try to sell you those things one thing at a time, I'll talk to you about payments. I'll talk to you about what the importance of fraud detection. I'll talk to you about our subscription capabilities. You're putting all the work on me as a prospect to put all those pieces together versus going to you and saying, hey, I've got a solution for subscription products. We allow you to take payments. We allow you to do that on a recurring basis monthly. We allow your users to cancel anytime easily. And we detect any kind of fraudulent activity for you. And think about the pain points of running a subscription box business. We talk in that language versus the language of payments, fraud, subscription management, basically. So we're talking in your language about the problem you're trying to solve instead of one product at a time and making you do the work to put it all together and make it make sense to you. So that's the biggest fundamental difference between product and solution messaging.
0: I guess that makes sense because like if you're an early, early stage company and you have like one very simple product, it might be easy to just talk about the what that product does. But as you grow to do a lot more stuff, you need to be able to talk about it in a more holistic way about the solutions. And I feel like that just is a lot more emotionally resonant when you actually talk about what is their problem versus rather than just talking about like what you built, which I feel like is more self-serving. Yeah, it's talking
1: about your product roadmap to them. And I think the other dynamic here, Josh, to your point is if you're an early stage startup, you build your first product, you get a lot of early adopters. And for those of you who are familiar with the notion of crossing the chasm, a Jeffrey Moore book, you get this kind of early innovator group. They're happy to put those product messages together and figure out what you guys offer. But then you've got this early majority, which is where your big opportunity is in the market, and they're less typically willing or able to like lace it all together. And that can typically hold you back from your true growth. So that's why the solution messaging is so important as you try to scale your business.
0: So one major trend that I've been noticing recently is this concept of a power shift from publishers or organizations to individuals. It seemed like, you know, in the past, organizations were really the ones that controlled distribution means. You know, you were a publication, you were a media site. The individual writers at that news website didn't have that much power because they had to go through you to reach their audience. But as we've had this explosion of social media with things like Substack and Twitter, people can go direct to their audience and their audience is also portable. They bring them with them when they go places. And it feels like we're seeing the same thing in kind of larger enterprise influencer marketing where like these big trusted names, maybe this used to be like behind the scenes with like, you know, investors looking at what analysts say. Now it's much more out in the public and it's saying, you know, these people who are really like going to bat for these companies, whether that's like a celebrity investor or some big, you know, social media influencer or a celebrity or athlete, it seems like the focus has moved towards those people and like, you know, saying, hey, there's someone I either respect or I relate to that believes in this thing. And that's why I want to use it versus because this like very faceless, amorphous, anonymous organization where I can't really tell who's like behind the keyboard on the other side is telling me to do something. It just comes off way more, I think, persuasive when it comes from an individual. And we actually had it on Press Club a while back. The titans of the newsletter industry, you know, Dan Primack from Axios and Ben Thompson from Stratechery and Chris Best, the CEO of Substack. And we were talking through this and they were discussing how when you make an email newsletter that comes from a person, it performs better than when you have it come from your organization. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this concept of the power shift from publishers to personalities or from brands and organizations to individuals.
2: This is kind of along the lines of what we were saying about getting people on board in social to be, you know, with that authenticity. This is something we do on Main Street's website. We found that word of mouth is just such a helpful tool and it used to be and it didn't happen over the past two years but people talking across dinner and talking about a service or a platform they were using and wanting to share it with their friends not only because it gave them a little bit of boost because they had figured something out and were doing something smartly but also because it helps someone else and we find that when we have people talking about us on twitter and vouching for us as a brand it leads to higher quality leads and customers that come in with longer lifetimes. And it's extremely helpful. So we try and leverage that as much as possible. And also through things like referral programs, how can we build something that is allowing and encouraging people to do those things that some people feel very comfortable doing naturally, but others maybe have to be incentivized or reminded to do. I'll pass it off to Jim, but it's just very interesting to hear him talk because I feel that, you know, Main Street is at that exact place that he was discussing where we came out with one product and we're really transitioning into a slate of products and making that jump with the consumer is really going to be something that we're going to have to lead on solutions-oriented marketing, but also those word-of-mouth influencers, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. And to your point, Stacey, like getting your best customers to like tell their story, especially using your full suite of products, which is one of the strategies I used around launching solutions, is like getting the alpha customers who've adopted all these great parts of your product offering as a full solution, and getting them to talk about it is so critical, I think, to building that. What I'd say about all this, Josh, is like influencer marketing has been around forever. Mm -hmm. What's changed is the scale platforms people have now to reach their audience through platforms like Substack and Twitter and Instagram and even Hacker News. It used to be you'd have to call somebody and say, hey, what do you think of this company? But now that person can, can have a voice that's really out there at scale, which is why every touchpoint with a customer is an opportunity to build a stronger marketing advocacy presence because any one person can hop onto Twitter and influence thousands of people. That's the negative side. of it. The positive side of It is that you're always trying to cultivate a community where people are just always talking about how they feel about your company, about your product, and giving them a voice, too. When I look at a website of a company and I don't see logos of their users above the fold, I get worried about their ability to build social proof around their solution. And even more so, like the actual faces and stories of those people as they're using your products. I think it's critical to like highlight that stuff and give people a voice through your website, but also like encourage them to amplify it through other platforms like Twitter, Substack, etc.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's this concept of the wall of love. We see this where like there's even products designed specifically to help you aggregate a bunch of the best, nicest tweets about your business and feature them on your website. And it's kind of the more tangible version of like just having a logo wall. Yeah, sure. These companies are associated with it, but do they like really love it? Or are they just like still paying for it? I feel like that goes such a long way. We're also seeing new infrastructure There's a company called Notice that I'm an angel investor in that specifically helps companies just look at all of the people that follow them on social media or that their followers follow and it helps them figure out who are and who could be the biggest brand advocates and evangelists for them and just understanding like these are the people that my followers love and they seem to have some affinity for us if you just go out and reach out to them and try to partner with them or just give them some special treatment, suddenly you can find you have this like really vocal evangelist behind you, which I think can be massively, massively powerful. So with that, I want to talk a little bit about your big news, Jim. So you just announced today that uh, you know after your career at, as a CEO and CMO for so many big companies like Stripe and New Relic, you just went into the VC market. You're, you're joining our fund, SignalFire, a billion-dollar under-management early-stage venture fund. Because of this big shift that's going on in how in the power structure of venture capital and startups. And maybe you could just talk through that kind of trend of what's going on that's catalyzing VCs to want to hire people like you.
1: It's apparent to almost everybody that being able to write a check is easy to do. And there's a lot of the money out there.
0: Founders are really looking for partners who are
1: going to actually help accelerate their growth and help increase their chances of success, right? And and by the way, limited partners who invest in VCs also want to know that steps are being taken to increase the success of the portfolio companies they invest in, too. So there's like multiple people excited about creating more winning solutions here. So a VC that's going to be successful today versus 10 years ago, the VC of today really needs to provide an amazing platform for their portfolio companies to be successful and in doing kind of what i 've been doing as an operator for years and years i 've gotten to a point where like I just love building companies and I wanted to do it in more than one company at a time and the best way to do that is actually being part of a team at Signalfire to actually help tens twenties thirties of companies at a time hone their go to market capabilities, think through things like messaging what 's their ideal customer profile, all that kind of stuff, and work side by side in partnership with the leaders from those companies to grow those businesses and make them successful so it's a unique opportunity that wouldn't have existed maybe a decade ago where smart VCs, in particular SignalFire, is investing heavily in making sure you've got strong seasoned operators who've kind of seen it before and can help young entrepreneurs be more successful by helping them look around corners and see things they haven't seen yet. Maybe they're early in the life of their building their company. They haven't gotten beyond 10 million of ARR, and they don't know what happens when you go from 10 to 100. It's great to have somebody who's done that before. I mean, we've got folks in our team like Tony Kranz from Netflix who, was it netflix running people ops when like it grew astronomically and knows what it's like when you start scaling a human team that quickly right meet the downfalls there so for me it's an opportunity to really work with a variety of like amazing founders to help build their companies work side by side with them and continue honing my craft of marketing quite honestly i bring my own experience to the table but of course i learn every day from these amazing founders as well and the teams they're building, like Stacy's one of them, right? Uh, Main Street's a, por- a portfolio company for Signalfire. And they're doing they're doing amazing work on go to market. And uh, I'm just privileged to be part of this whole opportunity.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's a whole bunch of of other catalysts that are really affecting this right now. I feel like the the most you know, cogent one is that venture capital investment actually doubled last year, which is crazy. It went from 294 billion in 2020 to 620 billion in 2021. And that essentially means that there's just a lot more money floating around for startups. And yes, there are also way more startups being launched because of tools like AWS that make it a lot easier to get something off the ground with a smaller team and maybe less money. But when you have all of this capital influx into the market, it means that it used to be founders. Had to like scrounge trying to get that like one VC to give them a term sheet and even good teams could have trouble fundraising and now it feels like there are enough smart seasoned VCs and there's so much money around that founders just get to pick based on not just the brand and maybe the terms of the deal, but who's gonna actually help them after the fact. And whether that's building like design organizations for helping with design at Google Ventures or very specific value adds from solo GPs, I really kind of feel like the next phase of venture looks like you know on one end, these massive institutional funds that spend a ton of money, but get economies of scale across a big portfolio from creating in-house services that might be expensive and maybe even a single portfolio company could never afford, which is like, you know, SignalFire built this beacon recruiting technology. And it's been a six-person engineering team for like six years that has been working on this thing. And that's something that most startups couldn't afford just to help them with recruiting. But we can build it once and apply it to, you know, across a 100 plus portfolio companies, it actually starts to make sense. And then on the other side, you see these solo GPs, like Packy McCormick is my favorite example. He writes that newsletter, Not Boring. And you know, he has I think it's only 100,000 subscribers now, huge, huge newsletter. And so just by giving him a tiny little slug of, of round, you know, letting him in for a small allocation of like an angel check, you might get written about or mentioned in his newsletter, which can massively help you with distribution and sales and even future fundraising. And so it feels like those solo GPs with like a really scalable cost-effective value add and those big institutions who can spend a lot of money, but are able to get a lot of economies of scale out of it. Those are the kind of future and I worry a little bit about the fund- funds in the middle where it's more of like a few generalists, you know, a brand of like having made a few good investments in the past, but not a lot in the way of tangible value adds. It's more like we'll make connections, we'll make intros, we'll give you some guidance. And is that kind of table stakes now and not enough?
1: I think what you're getting at is the whole market's turned around where it's the founder led market now, right? It's a founder's choice where they get their investment from. And it used to be the other way around. Certainly when I raised money from my last startup. I was the one begging for funding, basically, like pitching our company prospect and hoping to close the lead and then the whole round. These days, founders are in the power seat, to your point, Josh. And I think the table stakes are a certain level of support, but I think it's the VCs that go above and beyond that and think really carefully. Almost back to that conversation we had earlier about marketing, like what are the full lifecycle needs of my portfolio companies? What are the problems they're going to have next month and the month after and the month after that and how I get ahead of that and really try to serve their needs and help them accelerate? And make sure I care enough about it that it's a relentless focus. So, for example, Signalfire measures NPS net promoter score within its portfolio. I've never seen that in another VC. And Signalfire NPS, I believe, is 92 right now, which is unheard of. 91. <laughs> okay, 91. So it Apple's NPS, I believe, is like 47 or somewhere along those lines. So it's just not even close to the same category of love basically coming back. So I think it's not just invest in the kind of portfolio support capabilities. It's also having this kind of continuous loop with your founders to understand what they need next and kind of keep helping to serve their needs. And Web3 has hit, like how do we best support founders who are dealing with Web3 challenges, either pivoting their companies or founding new Web3 companies? Like how do we best show up as an investor and a partner to support them? There's a relentless focus on that at SignalFire. And I think VCs that aren't thinking that way and having a team focused on that are not going to succeed.
0: Yeah, I know that we've seen some funds really bulk up with these huge, huge portfolio services and platform teams, but sometimes it feels like those are kind of staffed with a lot of junior team members and it's really about execution. And it feels like that can't scale. Like You can't execute on behalf of all of your portfolio companies. Even if your fund's really big, the portfolio is going to get really big too. You're just not going to have enough manpower to actually be doing the work for them. I think it has to be more on that strategy side, teaching them how to fish rather than trying to fish for them. And I know that's kind of the approach we've taken at Signal Fire, and I like that a lot. You know, I run our PR advisory program and it's like, I can't be a full-time PR person for these companies. There's no way, nor would like reporters want to hear from me over and over again about every one of our portfolio companies, but if we could teach them how to pitch themselves. That's a much better strategy. And I think we've had like dozens and dozens of our companies be able to get into things like TechCrunch and other top publications because we're teaching them to pitch themselves. And then it's a skill they go forward with. They don't have to constantly rely on us. And even as they're much later in their journey, they're going to have that understanding. Stacey, I'd love to hear like you guys have raised from a few other awesome VCs as well. What are you seeing in terms of like the support that you're getting from these VCs? And does that really make a difference amongst executives when they're thinking about who to raise from?
2: Yeah, and speaking from experience, and I promise this isn't a paid placement by Signal Fire, but I mean, you know this, Josh, in my first week at Main Street, You were one of my first phone calls and it was being able to leverage you and your knowledge that has been really helpful. And like you were saying, it's not about the executors because we've only spoken a few times in the past six months when we maybe hit a wall or need some guidance or something, or we might, you know, we've reached out to other people on your team and knowing that Jim has joined is really exciting for us because you guys can't be in the day-to-day. You can't be in the nitty gritty, but having someone that has years of experience with certain expertise in a certain industry or lane and knowing we can rely on you is really invaluable. So we work with other VCs too, and being able to reach out to all of you for those things that we need when we're stumped has been extremely special. And when talking to certain VCs, of course, as a marketer, I'm always interested to know like who's their team stacked with and who can we leverage even just on a quarterly basis to hit with some hard questions or to help introduce us to new strategies or even connections or partnerships that we might not have been thinking of.
0: Okay, so I'm super excited about this shift because I think it actually is really good for the startup ecosystem overall. Like, I would much rather have companies getting real, tangible help rather than deals being won just because somebody's willing to overpay. Because you are seeing valuations massively accelerate, and sometimes they're like, "Oh, that's great. It seems like everyone's owns more money, right?" But on paper, that doesn't really matter. And instead, you see this problem of companies getting like over their skis because they say, you know, that some fund offers them some massive, massive check, and they say like, "Oh, well, we'll take this." it makes means on paper we're so much richer but that just means that the next round they have to justify an even bigger set of momentum they have to hit even more milestones because they're kind of like starting behind the starting line because they set themselves back by saying that they were kind of in front of where they already were when they started you've even seen this like parodied on like HBO's Silicon Valley and I think that knowledge is kind of trickling down that just picking your VC based on deal terms can be pretty dangerous because it can paint yourself into a corner about how you're going to be able to raise that next up round instead of going Into that down round spiral that can spell death for startups. So thank you guys so much for joining us on this today. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you both about one marketing strategy that you think is really powerful right now and one thing that you see people doing that you don't think actually works that well. But before that, I'm going to run through some of the big takeaways from today's show. We talked about at the start that there's more community, more globalized because of everyone spending so much more time online during the pandemic. But that also means that we're being exposed to more marketing than ever, and that's created in this kind of ad blindness and so instead what's really starting to work better is speaking from the heart as well as the mind and going with lower production value that can feel more authentic and is more relatable rather than looking like oh this is some super rich company who spent a ton of money to make this like commercial just saying like you know somebody talking directly to the camera saying like this is how it works this is why it's going to make your life better and that that can actually resonate a lot better we've also seen the massive normalization of virtual events and instead of having to fly people across the country or like only be able to to reach your local audience, you are seeing these virtual events that are, are able to maybe 10x the amount of people that can attend a conference like we saw with Stripe and some of its conferences. That said, I think we're also seeing this massive glut of online thought leadership, where you know, platforms like Clubhouse and Twitter and blogs and YouTube mean that there's more and more of this sort of thought leadery content available than ever. And so conferences that are kind of relying on that to get people in the door, I don't think are going to work. But instead, the ones that we saw at least working at South by Southwest, the best are the ones that create a great container of amazing people where you want to just introduce yourself to random people at that party or that event because you think they're going to actually have some relevance to what you do and that they're interesting. And that's more important sometimes than having like big time entertainment or, you know, a huge open bar. We also saw that when it comes to that event marketing, sometimes doing an official event actually isn't the best move. I love Jim's strategy of saying like, I'm not going to buy a booth at this conference or like fight my way to try to be a speaker on stage. I'm going to get a hotel suite right next door and throw some little parties and bring the best people together up there because they're going to want to escape the kind of chaos of the conference. And sometimes when other people are leaning out of event marketing is the great time to lean in. We also talked about strategies like creating beef, creating a sense of conflict or an enemy and painting something that is pretty obviously bad as the enemy can really gain you a ton of allies because then everybody who also hates that thing becomes your friend and so you see that with like death to plastic the liquid death mountain water slogan which they've seen has been super powerful for rallying the kind of eco-friendly crew around their canned water product and we also talked a little bit about upvote pods like that still works that like you know getting your whole community together rallying them and saying like hey we're going to launch this at this time we really need your help to like come in and and, and share this that it can be really really. really effective still. Then we talked a little bit more about some deeper marketing tactics like the data-driven approach and thinking about how do you target micro-segments? How do you put product signal to work? How do you look at every piece of the journey of your customer and know they're looking a little shaky right here? looks like they might churn if they don't continue the same momentum and that's when you hit them with re-engagement campaigns and that those can be super effective. And it's just about understanding what is all 10 steps that somebody needs to have to really love and enjoy your product and want to be sticky with it and making sure that if they ever stall out on one of those, you're kind of jumping in and guiding them to that next part. And that really means instrumenting your product journey with great analytics technology so you're not just, you know, blind in the wind. And then we talked a little bit about marketers can sometimes feel like they're Trying to take something over but you know the best people that you guys love to hire are the ones that are willing to like take ownership and try something new and own it themselves and don't need a ton of that constant direction and those are the people that seem to really excel in this space and then we talked a little bit about that concept of solution-based marketing versus maybe product focused or feature marketing if you're starting to be a wider product that does more if you're just trying to tell list off every feature and everything that you do it's going to get pretty long-winded and boring and oftentimes talking about the solution of like how does this actually make people's lives better than exactly how you're going to make their lives better can really matter is like what is the the result and it's often it has a lot more emotional resonance i love talking about the problem and the solution rather than the features we also talked a little bit about that power shift from brands and organizations to individuals and influencers because individuals have that authenticity, that relatability, that like hero sentiment from people and that parasocial relationship versus you know, an anonymous brand where you can't really tell who's behind it. And we've seen that like, email newsletter open rates are much higher when they come from an actual person, like coming from the CEO rather than coming from the company itself. And you also want to make sure that you're taking any of that social proof that you gain and putting it. All over your website. Don't just have a wall of logos. Have a wall of tweets, a, sh- a wall of love that shows people actually emphatically recommending your product. Because it's sometimes that word of mouth that goes way further than any of your paid marketing efforts. I've often found that when I reply to somebody who's at, you know has a great conversation going about something we're building or doing, that gets more traction than when I try to talk about it myself. And so trying to be helpful with to other people can actually be better than just sort of like beating your chest and tooting your own horn. And then you know we talked a little bit finally about why marketing is becoming super important right now in the startup ecosystem because of that huge influx of money. We saw venture capital double from like $290 million to about $620 million invested in 2021 versus 2020. And that just means that there's more capital available for founders. So they get to choose their VCs based on how they actually help, not just their brand, not just their deal terms, but the how they help after the fact. And that's especially important because when there are that many VC dollars out there, that means there are a lot of competition for in a lot of these spaces. And a lot of these companies are very well financed and can do a lot with marketing. They can pay a lot for ads. And so you have to get savvy rather than just spending more and you need great help. And that's why I think we're going to continually see bigger VC firms paying up to build giant value ads that have big economies of scale across their portfolio. Things like we build at SignalFire, like recruiting technology, data science teams, whole products and talent focused organizations where we have recruiters on the ground as well as talent leaders like the former chief talent officer of Netflix who wrote the famous Netflix culture handbook, Tawny Kranz, VCs are going to want these people on their team because they can make a real difference in the trajectory of their startups. And it's not just this hand wavy, oh, we like to be helpful or like we'll make introductions, but having real experts in specific fields that can help you with specific things. And I think we'll see more of these institutional funds building out big teams like that, as well as specific technologies and solo GP funds building lean value ads like newsletter from Paki McCormick is not boring newsletter, which now is not boring capital. Like he literally, turned his, his newsletter into a venture fund because of how popular it got. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that. And it's going to be harder in the middle if you are just a brand, just a few smart people and generalists and don't have tangible value ads. It's not going to work. And so that's why we hired Jim Stoneham, the former CMO of Scribe, to join our team at SignalFire, help our companies with their marketing. And I think that's not going to be the last. We're going to see a lot more of this. So thank you guys so much for being here today with us and talking us through this. And with that, I want to ask our final question of the day, which is what's one strategy and marketing that you're seeing that's working and one that isn't. And maybe you could start us off, Stacey.
2: Sure. This is a little bit old school. But something that I'm really seeing working out there right now is really building those resource centers, especially in B2B marketing. So finding a way to house content, whether it's video, written, audio, for the businesses that you're servicing to leverage your learnings and knowledge in order to help guide their business to accelerate and to elevate them. So I find those are extremely useful, not only because it builds brand trust, but also from an SEO perspective. And did you want me to touch on one that I Don't believe. Yes, please. That'd be great. So one that I don't think, and we kind of touched upon this, is promotional only social media. So gone are the days, and it was kind of short-lived of brands being promotional only. I think that you will not get followers and you will not get people engaging with your brand if they're constantly just having to watch and see your commercials. And so like we discussed, finding exciting and interesting ways to engage with them, different ways to feature people around your company, letting people in on the culture that's occurring within your walls and finding ways to also promote and elevate uh, whether it is your own customers or other businesses that you are in partnership with.
0: Those are awesome. Thank you for that. And Jim? I guess just building
1: on that, my, my, my works well was kind of the, the last point that Stacey made quite eloquently, which is really featuring your customers. So as we talked about earlier, these very authentic conversations with customers and in particular, to get very specific, I see a lot of customer case studies getting built into these like six-page PDFs that are linked off of websites, and that's useless because no one's going to spend the time to like download that PDF and study it. I love seeing like customer quotes, faces of those customers, pictures in their environment, short video clips, you know, with an iPhone, just a way for that customer to tell their story about how they're getting value out of your company's products really quickly and succinctly. Has worked very well for me over the past couple companies, actually instead of building these long-winded, high-production kind of customer use cases. So I think those work really well. Obviously, the long-winded ones don't work well, but the other thing I think that doesn't work well is, you know, we've seen the consumerization of most B2B software. And when I run into a website that basically only has a contact sales form and doesn't allow me to basically self-serve my experience of the product, I think it's a huge mess. Almost every product, no matter how complex, can offer like an initial, what we call a product-like growth motion, where somebody can self-serve like an initial trial. And companies that don't go after that, I think, are missing a really huge opportunity because most people in the world like to self-guide themselves, and they want to reach out to sales when they get in trouble, but that is their first step. So I think that's a real big opportunity for most companies to think about their product-led growth motion.
0: Fantastic. I think the big takeaway that we heard today was that it's about being more authentic. It's about getting a little bit weird, getting a little bit outside your comfort zone, toning down the production value, avoiding perfectionism, and just trying to talk really directly to people because I think we're all kind of tired of the BS. We've been absolutely drowning in it for these last two years stuck inside. And so you know, going and just being real with people is probably more effective than ever before. So I hope this strategies from today from the incredible CMOs. Uh, of Main Street and formerly Stripe, and now a partner at SignalFire, Jim Stoneham, and Stacey Pellitti from Main Street have helped you out to think through your own marketing strategies and find your own voice. So thank you so much for being here on Press Club, where we bring the big names in tech together to talk about the big ideas. We love having you part of our community. Check out our newsletter, our podcast, and our future Clubhouse shows. It's been my absolute pleasure. I'm Josh Constein, venture partner at SignalFire. If you are building something special in any of these spaces, and basically any vertical, we would love to hear about it. We invest seed to Series B and we help with everything. We help with recruiting. We have recruiting technology that ranks hundreds of millions of people in the tech ecosystem on skill level and hireability so we can give these reports to our portfolio companies so they know exactly who to reach out to no matter what the criteria they're looking for. We have data science teams, invested advisors. We throw 100 events per year. We have in-house experts on pitch deck design and marketing and growth, PR, my program. And now we have Jim Stoneham, the former CMO of Stripe, there to help out our portfolio companies. So if that sounds like could be helpful for you we'd love to hear your pitch go find a warm intro and talk to us we'd love to hear about what you're building but otherwise it has been my absolute pleasure to be your host today please use these tactics for your own good go find a way to find your voice and be a little bit more real with your customers and we will catch you next time on press club where the big names in tech talk about the big ideas for me josh constein from signal fire it's been my pleasure Farewell, and thank you to jim and stacy you guys were wonderful thank you josh thanks, josh thanks everybody